This morning we are continuing our look at the sermon letter to the Hebrews. If you have your Bible with you, go ahead and turn to, uh, to Hebrews chapter 2. If you're using the Bible under the seat in front of you, you'll find that on page 1276. 1276. Last week we looked at the first section of uh, Hebrews chapter 2, the first real practical application uh, of the, 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 the letter. One of the hallmarks of this book, of this, this letter, this work, is that the author moves relatively fluidly between high theology and practical application, deeply rooted, grounded practical application of that high theology. We're going to see that back and forth movement again and again through this book. Um, and so we looked at the first practical application over the last couple of weeks. This morning we jump into the next broad section, which moves us back into high theology again. Again, that back and forth movement. Um, which that, that high theology, of course, informs the author's and ours application. We stand on truth and apply it to our lives, and that is we're looking at the truth this morning. And of course, as always, though this is God's Word, we are sinful, and we will read it and absolutely twist it into a pretzel to make it mean what we want it to mean if the Holy Spirit doesn't restrain us. So if you're able, please stand with me while I pray for Him to teach us his truth, and then remain standing as I read from Hebrews chapter 2. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, we come to your word because we desperately need truth. We are in a miasma, a fog, where it is hard to see the truth. Shine the light of your truth into our hearts. Pour your Spirit out on us that we might recognize your truth, believe your truth, live out your truth to your glory. Restrain our sin, soften our hearts, open our minds that we would be pleasing servants to you. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. As I said, I'm reading from Hebrews 2. We're going to focus on verses 5 to 9 this morning, but I'm going to read starting at the beginning of the chapter just to give us the context there. So this is Hebrews chapter 2. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. Verse 5. For it was not to the angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything under subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for all. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. Be seated. Jean-Baptiste Jules Bernadotte was born in 1763, the son of a French government bureaucrat, a government worker. 
As a young man, he joined the army, and by the start of the French Revolution in the spring of 1789, he had risen to the rank of sergeant. Eventually, through his service uh, to the French nation and ultimately to the emperor Napoleon, uh, he became one of Napoleon's first marshals, we would, what we would call a five-star general. But in an odd twist of history, Bernadotte found favor in the eyes of the king of Sweden, Charles XIII, as a result of his treatment of Swedish soldiers who were taken prisoner during a battle with Napoleon's army. When Sweden's crown prince suddenly died in 1810, King Charles of Sweden actually offered to put Bernadotte next in line for the Swedish throne. The commanding officer of a former enemy next in line for the throne. The son of the French government worker was renamed Charles John, the new crown prince of Sweden. And in 1818, after the death of Charles XIII, Bernadotte assumed the throne as King Charles XIV of Sweden. He was a popular but harsh monarch uh, who reigned until his death in 1844 at the age of 81. Interestingly, it is said that during the embalming process, they discovered an ironic secret. Years earlier, during, almost certainly during the French Revolution, he had acquired a tattoo. On his chest was a picture of a red cap, one of the symbols of liberation in, during the French Revolution, with the French words, Mort au Roy, death to all kings. History is filled with people like Bernadotte, people who railed against the authority over them, but then seized power and lorded it over others. There is something innate in us as humans that does not want to submit ever, that wants to be in charge of all things always. Of course, the reality is there's simply no other creature in the world that harbors that kind of ambition to be like God except for we who bear God's image. Next time you're at the zoo, go up to a, an elephant or a cheetah or a penguin or a crocodile and whisper in their ear, you shall be like God. Not only will they regard you with indifference or maybe hunger, you will have a hard time not laughing. For all their grandeur, for all their power, the world's creatures just don't give the least evidence of wanting to be anything other than a well-fed version of what they already are. The possible exception that proves the rule is cats, but they don't really have any ambition. They're free of human traits like ambition because they think they already are God, but that's another story. We saw when we looked at chapter 1 that the author has clearly articulated the superiority of Christ over the angels. And in chapter 1, he was focused particularly on uh, the angels' role as messengers. The Son is a superior messenger carrying a superior message. So we to whom that message has come, verse, chapter 2, verse 1, must pay much closer attention to it. Then we paid to the message that came before. Now, the author returns to the superiority of Christ, adding evidence, adding arguments to that overarching point. Now he's approaching that superiority from a, a slightly different angle, where chapter 1 fo focused exclusively on 
the work of, of the messengers of God in the Old Testament, the work that had been completed, now in chapter 2, he centers the focus more precisely on the authority of these two different messengers, as it were, of the Son and the angels. Because of the nature of the subject matter, the focus is, in some sense, uh, on the age to come. Um, in another sense, it's now in the church age. You've heard me talk before about the, the sense where the, of the, the kingdom of God and the gospel as both already and not yet. You've heard me talk about that before. I'm going to come back and explain that a little bit more when we get to it uh, this morning. Flesh that out some more as we work through this section. The central focus here is the Son of Man. And how that phrase is to be understood. The author here shows that the Son of Man is, first, the ideal man. And second, the representative Savior. And third, the reigning King. So the ideal man, the representative Savior, the reigning King. And we'll start with the idea that the Son of Man is the ideal man because that is the central idea. Both of the other two ideas, representative Savior and reigning King, both flow out of the idea of the Son of Man as the ideal man, as the, uh, the, the one who completely fulfills what it means to be man. So let's look at that idea of the ideal man. The Son of Man is the ideal man. The author here quotes the uh, Greek translation in, in verses uh, 6 through 8 there, the beginning of 8, quotes the Greek translation called the Septuagint of Psalm 8. Now, as an aside, I absolutely love the way that the author introduces this quotation. The literal Greek here at the, the end of, of 6 where he introduces this, it says, someone has said somewhere, and then he gives us the quote. So if you're ever struggling to come up with the reference for a Bible verse that you know, the Bible verse, but you can't remember where it is, you're in good company. Just relax. It's fine. Anyway, that's for free. Quick review, Psalm 8, in its original context, the psalmist is... Um, overflowing uh, with uh, the, the glory of God's treatment of mankind. He's overwhelmed by it and is praising the Lord for what the Lord has done to and for humanity. Humanity is created. Humanity is finite. Humanity is like nursing infants compared to God. We need constant nourishment and care. We can do nothing for ourselves. Yet the infinite, eternal God who needs nothing from us, nevertheless, deigns to care for humans and even to lift us up as His sub-regents, His delegated governors over all creation. In the created order, humanity is crowned with glory and honor because uniquely amongst creation, we bear God's image. Which sounds great, until you look around at the world around us, in which glory and honor really doesn't seem to do a very good job of describing the actual human situation on the ground. Of course, we know why. Uh, beginning with the fall in Genesis 3, we who bear God's image have made an absolute hash of everything that we've touched poisoning it by our selfish ambition, by our desire to cast God down and reign in His place. We are supposed to rule God's creation in God's name for God's glory. Rule it we do, 
but almost entirely for our own selfish benefit. And yet, despite all of that, the Lord still causes mankind to bear His image. That image is tarnished, perhaps, by our sin, but is not destroyed. We still bear the image of God. And the Lord still calls us to stand as His sub-regent. And so the psalmist rejoices and worships God for His mercy toward mankind. All right, so far, not a new concept, right? This is all familiar ideas. How do we get from there to the way that the author uses this passage as speaking specifically about Jesus Himself? Really, what it, where we, how we get there, how he got there, is through the phrase, the Son of Man, specifically the ways that Jesus uses that phrase. In Psalm 8, Son of Man, on the surface at least, is simply a poetic parallel to man in the verse before. What is man that you are mindful of him, or the Son of Man that you care for him? Those are equivalent terminology in the psalm. Just a poetic way of saying the same thing again. Both mean the same thing, humanity. But in, in Daniel 7, that term gets, starts getting developed a little bit. Daniel has a vision of, quote, one like a son of man who is presented to God and is individually given dominion and glory and a kingdom. That's Daniel seven thirteen, I believe. Uh, again, the phrase is primarily intended even in Daniel to mean a human. That the Messiah would be human, but there is a recognition in Daniel's vision that there was something unique about this particular Son of Man. And then we get to Jesus and how Jesus spoke about Himself. Now, of course, Jesus is referred to by a lot of different titles, a lot of different, most, a lot of them metaphorical. Uh, Jesus is the bread, Jesus is the life, Jesus is the way, that sort of thing. Those are metaphorical ways that Jesus refers to Himself. But by far, by far, the most common way that Jesus refers to Himself was Son of Man. Over a hundred times it's recorded in the Gospels that Jesus called Himself the Son of Man. And there's a development in how the Bible uses this term and how it was understood to move from a human to a unique human to, in the intertestamental period, not just a unique human, but the Messianic human, the Messiah, to... Jesus' use as the God-man. There's a development of the terminology. As one commentator said, since Jesus spoke of Himself as the Son of Man, this expression has, has had for Christians a connotation beyond its etymological force. That means it's not just the words, but there's a connotation, a, an, an implication far huger than just what the words themselves, the bare meaning of the words uh, is. So where the psalmist wrote, thinking that he was speaking simply of humans broadly, the author of Hebrews recognizes that the psalmist wrote even better than he knew. That God inspired that psalm in such a way that it meant more than the, the human author even was aware was going on. The author of Hebrews sees in Psalm 8 a reference to the exaltation of Christ as the unique representative, ideal human. Just like Adam, the first man, Jesus, the second man, stands as a representative before the Lord of humanity. 
unlike Adam, Jesus did everything necessary to please God perfectly. Now we see this idea in Philippians 2 where Paul quotes a, a very early Christian hymn uh, in which the faithfulness of the second man, Jesus, is contrasted with the fall of the first man. Jesus is God's unique man who completely fulfills God's purpose for humanity. And of course, we know that he could only do that because he was not just 100% human. He was also 100% God, both and. And this idea of a representative who stands before God on behalf of the whole group, now that idea is deeply embedded throughout the Old Testament, throughout all of Scripture. That is not a new concept when we get to Jesus. Um, it's particularly seen in the Old Testament covenantal structure. Every time we see God deal with humanity, particularly with Israel, His unique covenant people, God works through a single representative, sometimes called a mediator, whether that's Adam or Isaac or Jacob or Moses or the different judges or the kings, most notably including David. God works through mediators, a single representative. But throughout the Old Testament, even the very best of those mediators, those representatives, fail. And when one person fails in the accomplishment of the divine purpose, as in some degree all the Old Testament, uh, all did in Old Testament times, God raises up another to take his place, another representative. But here's the question. Who could take the place of Adam? the unique, singular representative of all of humanity. Only one who is capable of undoing the effects of Adam's fall and thus ushering in a new ordering and governing of the entire world. In short, we needed a new representative before God. In this, Jesus did what Adam failed to do, obeying God perfectly, personally, and perpetually. Without failing even once, even in the slightest amount, Jesus obeyed God faithfully. And in so doing, he earned from God by his own merit eternal life and God's good pleasure. Jesus, we confess that the, the God formed uh, with, the, with humanity, God made a covenant of life or a covenant of works, it's sometimes called. Jesus kept the covenant of works perfectly and earned the reward of it. But to what end? Jesus stepped in as the representative of humanity before God, and so he is not simply the ideal man, but he's the ideal man for the purpose of becoming the representative savior of his people. Jesus didn't simply keep the law for himself. He kept it on our behalf. It is as the true representative of humanity that Christ is understood as fulfilling the language of the psalm and thus as fulfilling the declared purpose of the creator when he brought the human race into being. Just as we were in Adam and therefore Adam's sin earned for us the results of our representative's action, death, so also we who are in Christ are given the results of our representative's actions, life. The second man, Jesus, 
could not simply keep the law perfectly. That would provide a different path, but not one that any actual human could get to because we are bound in Adam apart from Christ. We needed a way to overcome the cost of Adam's disobedience before we could be transferred into the kingdom of light, into the path that Christ forged for us. Because we stood and condemned in Adam, Jesus, the second man, also had to rectify the fall of the first man. He had to share in the conditions of those united to Adam. Conditions inseparable now from the human condition. Be born into the, under the curse of suffering and death. Winning redemption for those trapped under that curse. It wasn't enough that he obeyed perfectly, personally, and perpetually. It wasn't enough. He also had to fulfill that perfect personal and perpetual obedience as one of us. One under the curse. One subject to grief and pain. Subject to temptation. Subject to death. He was not simply a Savior, but a representative Savior. He took our place as human And then fulfilled God's commands to humans so that we who are human and failed could receive the reward that He earned. He took our place as human and fulfilled God's commands to human. This is often called Jesus' active righteousness in kind of the fancy theological terminology. This is His active righteousness. But also, He took our place under the curse, subjecting Himself to suffering and death ultimately. Ultimately, He took the death that Adam earned for us. The death which we confirm in ourselves by our own personal sin every moment. He took our death and He died in our place. This is called, the theological term here is His passive obedience. Not as in He's just sitting around doing nothing, but as in He experienced the passion. And that He obeyed through the passion. So it's His passive obedience. In both his active and his passive obedience, Jesus stood as our representative Savior before God, enduring the just uh, retribution for our sin that we deserve and earning for us the complete redemption and approval that he deserved. It's sometimes called the great exchange where our sin and the penalty for it is laid on him and his just reward and righteousness is laid on us. They are exchanged. On that great day when you stand before the Lord and He says to you, Christian, well done, good and faithful servant, it won't be because of what you did. It will be because of what Christ did, entirely because of what Jesus did on your behalf. His record given to you, the Lord looks at you and says, well done, good and faithful servant. He is the ideal man who represents us the Lord. Of course, it must be said, if you're not a Christian, none of that applies to you. You also have a representative before God, but it's Adam, not Jesus. You will also be given the rewards earned by your representative on your behalf, and you will reap eternal death. For you, this world in all its brokenness is the best it's ever going to be. 
This world, as broken as it is, is the closest you will ever get to heaven. As you strive to earn a better result by what you conceive of as your faithfulness, you are merely condemning yourself as the son of your father Abraham or Adam, excuse me, who rejected God's design for his own. The more you work to earn God's favor, the more you prove that you are rejecting God's purpose and plan in favor of your own purpose and plan. But a new way, a representative, a new representative is held out for you to choose today instead of your way. A representative who not only earned favor from God, but who fixed the brokenness of this world by his death and resurrection. Death and suffering and grief won the battle on the cross when Jesus died, but at that very moment they also lost the war entirely. Death, for those in Christ, death shall die. So you who are not in Christ now, turn away from your striving for your so-called righteousness that can only condemn you. Receive by His grace true righteousness that you could never earn. He is, all you have to do is trust a different representative. He is the ideal man who represents us. And because He did, because He represented us going through suffering and death, He is crowned with glory and honor. But also, because of His faithfulness, He is also the reigning king. This is a little harder for us to grasp, right? Precisely because of the brokenness of this world. Death has lost the war, but it still stalks us. How do we get these two realities together that death shall die and yet it's, it's still killing us right now? Psalm 8, our, our author here in, and our author here insists that everything has been put in subjection under Jesus' feet. Sense here is that Jesus is realizing the sovereignty destined for humanity, that humanity was originally called to be sovereign over all creation, and Jesus, as the perfect ideal human, is now sovereign over all creation, fulfilling the creation mandate. God created humanity in the person of Adam and Eve to reign under God over all creation. And while Adam's rebellion broke that in some fundamental ways, it is still God's purpose for humanity to reign under Him over creation. When Jesus ascended and sat down at the right hand of the Father, He fulfilled the purpose of God that humanity would reign. In Him, the ideal man, the representative man, man is reigning. And I know you confess that, Christians. I know you believe that, but you probably also struggle with it some, don't you? If you're like me at all, anyway. Because it certainly doesn't look much like Jesus' perfect eschatological kingdom when I look around the world that we live in. This world is still pretty broken. Grief and pain, sickness and death still stalk us. What is going on here? How do we understand this? I mentioned earlier the idea of the already and the not yet character of God's kingdom. In the fullest sense of what God's kingdom will be, It's not here yet. We don't see it yet. Obviously, we look around, there's still sin, there's still death, there's still brokenness, there's COVID is still happening. 
God's kingdom has not been fully established in the world in, in time yet. It's not yet here. There will come a day when Jesus will return in glory and will reign directly and visibly. And as Samwise Gamgee said, all the sad things will come untrue. That somehow beyond conception and almost beyond imagination, death and pain and grief and sorrow and temptation and sin will all end. And we who are represented by Christ will look in the face of our righteous judge and find there not condemnation but the face of one who loves us. And we will dwell face to face with God himself. Obviously that hasn't happened yet. Please, Lord Jesus, come quickly. We pray that it will happen soon, that all the brokenness and awfulness of this world will be ended, but it hasn't happened yet, and we await his return. And yet, there is a sense in which it has begun. The kingdom of God has begun to break into time. The eternal is breaking into the temporal. It has begun. The kingdom of God, which, yes, isn't here in fullness, nevertheless is here. Christ is reigning today. Sin is being mortified. Sin is being restricted, restrained. He's being repented of and removed from our lives. And if you think that's not the kingdom of God at work, you're crazy. The eternal has broken into time. It is, God's kingdom is, has invaded and is claiming territory, so to speak, for the reigning king, there is a sense in which he is now already king over all things. He is sovereign over all things and nothing happens outside of his control. Praise God. There is a sense in which all of creation is groaning, waiting for him to be the king in truth. For all of humanity, all of creation to submit to him voluntarily or not voluntarily. In Christ's suffering and death and resurrection, He inaugurated His kingdom. When He rose from the grave, the kingdom broke in. Something happened that could not happen without the kingdom of God being there. And so we, who are Christ's, are already justified by His blood, declared holy, righteous, and acceptable to God even while we are not yet made actually sinless, not yet made perfect in sanctification. It is both and at the same time. We live in the time between times. We no longer live before Christ when the kingdom had not yet broken in at all, but neither do we live in the time that is to come when all things will truly be put in subjection under His feet and all will be made right. But it's begun. The kingdom has begun to break in and it is claiming more and more territory in our lives and in the world with every passing moment. We are certainly still plagued by the sin which clings so closely, by the world around us, even by the direct attacks of the adversary. None of that can change the reality. None of that can change that Christ's kingdom has broken in and will ultimately conquer all, period, without question. 
The attacks of our adversary, the sin, the death, the mess that we deal with on a daily basis is nothing more than the last dying gasps of a world in rebellion as the true king takes his throne. Jesus, who is the ideal man, the unique God-man, represents his people to the triune God. He reigns over all creation, making his enemies a footstool for his feet, raising his people up to participate in his kingdom and share in his glory entirely by his grace, entirely because of his death and resurrection. It is not yet complete, but it has begun. It is already here. Jesus reigns sovereign and can never be shaken from his throne. What we have now are the first fruits that guarantee the harvest to come. Trust Jesus as your representative and receive that harvest, that reward that he earned entirely by grace. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are sovereign, that you are the reigning king, that you represent us and save us, that you are the second Adam, the second man who fulfilled all that God commanded and fixed all that the first man broke. We pray, Lord Jesus, that you would come quickly, that you would not just inaugurate your kingdom, but fulfill it in us that we would see you reigning over all things, that all the sin and brokenness and death and sadness and grief and sorrow and pain, all of it would be wiped away and be no more. And that we would rejoice in you who took our place. That we might stand with you, in you, on that day. Glorify yourself in us, Father, Son, and Spirit. We pray it in Jesus' name.